And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 will begin in verse 27 today. And if you're following along in the Bibles in the pew rack in front of you, that's on page 1040. Page 1040 is Philippians chapter 1. We're taking a little break today. Uh, Actually, it's going to be a protracted break, if you will, from the Gospel of Mark, uh, transitioning towards our summer in the Psalms. But back in November, as the elders were gathering for retreat, we were praying about um, what does our church need to hear? What do we need to think about and pray about and focus on? And while, as you will Uh, You've come to find out if you've been here for any length of time, we are um, pretty steady digesters of God's word in expositional preaching verse by verse through uh, passages of scripture. We've been in Mark's gospel. This fall we'll continue a series that we've done for a couple years now in the book of Exodus. We're going to continue that in this book of Psalms. But we do think from time to time there are opportunities where we can and should uh, take a moment to preach topically and expositionally. Okay, so you can always preach expositionally. The question is, are you saying, is whoever's behind this pulpit saying what the text says? That's what expositional preaching is. Uh, But there are times when I think our church needs uh, a little injection, a little encouragement. And uh, as the elders gathered, we really felt like one of those areas that we needed to uh, take courage from and, and hear from God's word about is this idea of being ambassadors for Christ. Being citizens of a heavenly kingdom, belonging to this kingdom outpost here and church membership and all that that means, but then also being a light to the world. As an ambassador does, uh, he or she takes their uh, nation's values and their nation's uh, representatives, so to speak, in other places. And so in a way, we are Christ's representatives to the world, to St. Mary's County around us. And as we were thinking of uh, a text that would uh, help us with that, we found that the book of Philippians actually has two protracted texts that speak to this idea of being citizens of heaven and lights in the world. And so this is part one of a little two-part series that we're going to do in the book of Philippians. Pastor Allen will preach next Sunday as uh, Christina and I have the privilege of being your messengers to the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, But today, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through chapter 2 and verse 18. And I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Paul begins... Just one thing, verse 27, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, If any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, 
intent on one purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing, but even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for standing in honor of it. You may be seated. As the call and response song goes that we often sing here, do you feel the world is broken? We do. (laughs) Yes, yes. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. The world is dark, crooked, twisted, perverted. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. In fact, light shines brighter in the midst of the darkness. And this text can help us shine brightly in a dark world. As one writer put it, Instead of us saying, look what the world has come to, we have the great privilege of proclaiming, look who has come to the world. Do you see the difference? As a church full of believers who have read and studied the Olivet Discourse, we are not surprised that the believers in Philippi were facing trouble and persecution. Jesus had warned his disciples that persecution would characterize the period between his two comings. And now, just 30 years later, Paul has heard, perhaps from Epaphrodites, that there was discord within and opposition without for the church he had planted on his second missionary journey. So while he's imprisoned in Rome, 
he himself there on account of his gospel witness, Paul is writing to encourage believers to live their lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, despite all the darkness around them. That command in verse 27 is actually what governs the whole section of scripture that I just read. So often we are tempted to take a good long look at Philippians 2, 5 through 11. They are beloved passages of scripture to us. Many of you have perhaps memorized them. In them we find parts of doctrine that are central to Christian faith and teaching. We learn about the divinity of Christ, Christ's preexistence, his equality with God the Father, his incarnation and in true humanity, Christ's voluntary death on the cross, the certainty of his ultimate triumph over evil, and the permanence of his reign. And they also serve as the centerpiece of Paul's argument from chapter 127 to 218. So today we won't spend all of our time honing in on those verses as it would be tempting to do. We'll look instead at how they serve Paul's greater concern for the Philippian church's steadfastness and unity in the face of opposition and persecution and trouble within. As I mentioned, that command at verse 27 is the focus of this entire section. Paul begins holding up a finger metaphorically or so to speak and says, just one thing. Can you, can you envision that in his mind's eye? So if we're going to kind of glance through Philippians, I think we found a good spot to hone in, right? Just one thing. I love that translation of the CSB on verse 27. This is important, he says. As citizens of heaven live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, it took 16 English words to say what Paul said in seven Greek words. That's because that Greek command requires a lot of teasing out. It had a lot of nuance to it. This, uh, Paul actually never used the command anywhere else in his writings, except to the church in Philippi. And the command is forgive my Greek, politeuste, politeuste. This is the word that we get our word um, uh, polis from, like city. You probably know it in words like metropolis or decapolis. And that polis is this idea of the city-state. In the classical age, the polis was the largest political unit and the Greek people belong to a polis the same way we belong to our country. The noun form actually refers to an idea of citizenship. And the verb means to conduct yourselves worthy as a citizen of a city-state. So this is a pretty complex thing. We need to kind of unpack and understand this command as citizens of heaven. James Montgomery Boyce explains more in his commentary. He writes that further light is shed upon this verse by the fact that Philippi enjoyed a privileged relationship with Rome. Prior to the great civil war after Julius Caesar's death, in which Octavian finally defeated Anthony in 44 BC, some of you historians are perking up, you love this stuff. Philippi was like any other city in the empire. But after the battle... A number of soldiers who had been favorable to Anthony were settled there. 
And for this reason, the city was given a special dominance. And from that time on, the town of Philippi became a Roman colony. Citizens of the city were Romans through and through. Roman law was practiced by the local civil administration. As much as possible for a frontier city on the outer bounds of the empire, Philippi adopted Roman customs. They were an outpost, a colony of Rome, if you will. And to be a colony was something of which any city in the empire was proud. Consequently, the Philippians took great delight in identifying themselves as Romans. We read, for instance, that when Paul had first preached the gospel in Philippi, a number of the citizens accused him before the magistrates, saying, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. They were very proud of their Roman citizenship. This explains why Paul's phrase, Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. That, that command is so significant. Because Paul knew how proud the Philippians were of their earthly citizenship. I think in this room we would probably say the same thing. We are proud of our earthly citizenship. He knew that they allowed their citizenship to affect not only their laws, but their social customs and their daily conduct. How much more then, the argument goes, were they to be proud of their heavenly citizenship? This is the greater citizenship that was to govern their actions. They were to cherish and live by its laws, heaven's customs. And moreover, they were to extend the influence of that commonwealth in the midst of the pagan and spiritually hostile environment they found themselves in. In other words, if you went to Philippi, you'd be reminded of Rome. And if you go to the church, it is to remind you of heaven. We are kingdom outposts of heaven. And our way of life here at Leonardtown Baptist Church should reflect heaven's values and heaven's way of living We are thus to make known what life in heaven is like by the way we act and live as we gather together. So Paul says that as citizens of heaven, we are first of all to stand firm in unity as we fearlessly contend together for the faith of the gospel. Stand firm in unity as we contend together for the gospel. We see this in verses 27 through 30. Remember, Paul had likely gotten word from Epaphroditus that there was discord within the church. And he's reminding believers that as citizens of heaven, we find a greater unity in advancing the gospel than we will ever find in our unity, even as citizens of earthly kingdoms. Like we should have more in common with the believers in the church in China and in India and in Pakistan and around the world than sometimes we find in common with our earthly citizens of the same status. We strive together and contend together as a church for the same ends. We are working together for the advance of the gospel. And we do so in unity of the same spirit and having the same mind, or as Paul puts it in verse 27, being in one accord. 
Paul's like, there's no time for y'all to fight one another when you're on a mission together. How true is that? In any kind of realm you find yourself in, it's that common thing you're working towards that helps you set aside some of the other differences. And as we advance the gospel, there's no time for infighting. Contending together for the faith, Paul says, is a quick way to lay aside our petty differences. And Paul says, you know what? Don't be scared if, as you stand united and proclaim Christ, you face opposition. It actually probably means you're doing something right. Moises Silva paraphrases verses 28 through 30 like this. He says, The conflicts that you are experiencing might appear frightening, and thus they might threaten to discourage you, but you can't let that happen. Perhaps you are tempted to, you're tempted to believe that these conflicts are like a bad omen, as though God is displeased with you and he intends to destroy you. But that's exactly the wrong way of thinking about external opposition to the gospel going forth. You must interpret what is happening as an evidence of God's design for you to save you. Why is that? He says, because suffering is the way to glory. We saw that at the end of chapter 1, and then Paul gives that as an example as he talks of Christ's humiliation and his own suffering, which led, in the great parabola of all history, it led to his exaltation. Christ suffered and was glorified, and that is the way for us as believers as well. Again, coming off the series on the Olivet Discourse, we know That Christ's disciples are to be unflinching in the face of persecution. So Paul says, stand firm in unity. I think of like linked arms facing out together as we contend together for the advance of the gospel. But then secondly, note that one key way to develop a greater unity is not only linking arms and gospel advance, but laying aside our own interests in Christ-like humility. Citizens of heaven, after all, forge greater unity as they humble themselves. And we see this in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Paul, in verse 1, begins with a fourfold basis for receiving his command to make his joy complete. Paul is not asking if there is encouragement in Christ as though he's not really sure. This is a kind of writing that assumes the answer is, yes, there is encouragement in Christ. So the Philippians do know of God's comfort and salvation in Christ. They have experienced the consolation that Christ's love is for them. Theirs is a participation, a common sharing in the Holy Spirit. And they have been blessed through his gracious ministry in their hearts and lives. And since those realities are true, he begins with that bedrock. Paul commands them, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, and being united in purpose. It's a mindset, Paul says. And he says, I want you all to have that same mind, more on which he will write later. But this mindset is characterized, Paul says, by humility, not selfish ambition or self-serving motives, a humility that thinks of the other person as more important 
than yourself. Did you know that here at Leonardtown Baptist Church, one of our constitutional values, one of eight values we list in our founding document is Christ-like humility. We want to have Christ-like humility, quote, for submission to the will of God and the interests of others ahead of our own. And we seek to imitate the life modeled by Jesus. So important is this concept to the health of a local church. We ensconced it in our constitution. Like we need to get this and let it sink in to our hearts. This life modeled by Jesus, Paul says, we are to have. And so thirdly, citizens of heaven should follow Christ's example of humble obedience. Paul says in verse 5, The mindset he was describing that we should all have is one that we are to all adopt. Do you see that in the beginning of verse 5? It is the attitude of our Lord Jesus. The attitude he had when he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. We talked a little bit about that last week as well, if you want to listen to the message. Jesus voluntarily gave up some of what was rightfully his to assume the form of a servant to be born as a human being for our sake. He who was rich became poor, Paul said, for our sake. He didn't consider his own interests. He considered our interests first. So humble was Christ that he obeyed the Father's will, took the cup of wrath that we deserved by dying on the cross. His humility led him to obedience that went to the point of dying for the sake of sinners like you and like me. Friends, if you're here today and you've never heard it before, Jesus Christ died and shed his blood on the cross of Calvary for undeserving sinners like you and me. He paid the penalty of death we all deserve to pay, and he did it out of love and care for us. If you haven't done so yet, repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in what Jesus did when he died on the cross for you and rose again. And Christians, those of you who have placed your faith in Christ alone for your salvation, you and I are being reminded today from scripture that if Christ went to those kinds of lengths to rescue us, as Paul says in Romans, while we were yet sinners, we ought to have the same mindset of humble, obedient sacrifice for others, even when they don't deserve it, by putting their interests above our own. But then notice, as Paul climbs the heights of the Christ hymn, as it's called, in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, he doesn't get lost in the clouds, does he? He continues marching right along into verse 12 with a therefore. And so we ask, what's it there for? He says, therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, uh, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He takes all this teaching about Christ and Christ's humility and obedience and taking the form of a servant, and he ties that humble obedience, especially, I think, from verse 8, to the lives of the Philippians. 
They are citizens of heaven whose focus is to be obedience because God is working in their lives, not because they are working for their salvation. You know that, don't you? So citizens of heaven, fourthly, focus on obedience because God is working in their lives. Paul does not say, you Philippian people need to work for your salvation, He says, work out your salvation in light of what I've just said about Christ and his humility and his attitude. Brothers and sisters in the church, get to work. It's time to go to work. He tells them, be obedient. Even if I can't come and see you again, you need to live a certain way because Christ lived that way. And because God is working in you to bring that to be. Here again, we see a tie of the beautiful tapestry of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. You see, the Christian life is neither a robotic passivity that says God will do it all, nor a strident self-reliance that says I can do it all. Paul says work. Work out your salvation. Do it with fear and trembling. Take it seriously. But is that because if you don't work, it'll never happen? No, it's precisely because God is working. Boy says it like this. Because you are already saved, because God has already entered into your life in the person of the Holy Spirit, because you therefore have his power at work in you, because of these things, you are now to strive to express this salvation in your conduct which sounds a whole lot like the governing command of 127. Live your lives in a worthy manner of the gospel. Live worthy of what you already are. You are a citizen of heaven. Live like it. The Christian life, sanctification, the pursuit of holiness, is becoming what you are. The supernatural reality of your justification is the grounds for your diligent effort toward things like mortification or putting to death of sin and of sanctification or becoming more holy. God has done the heavy lifting and he is the one who is also willing and working in you to enable your obedience to important things like forsaking grumbling and forsaking arguing with one another as just one example that Paul goes on to give. So we look now at the fifth point and the last point in your outline where we see that citizens of heaven forsake grumbling and arguing for the sake of faultless shining. Every word matters. Citizens of heaven forsake grumbling and arguing for the sake of faultless shining. Look at verse 14 in your Bibles with me. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. I was on Facebook the other day and I saw a Christian friend had posted how as she was growing up, her mom never had to say which verse it was to write. All she would say is front and back. That's what she would say to her, front and back. And she knew she was to go right on the front and back of a piece of paper, Philippians 2, 14. 
do everything without grumbling and arguing. She said, I think it's time. She's a a mom now. I think it's time to bring this back for the next generation. She was appreciative of her mom's uh, diligence in teaching her that lesson. But kids, let let me just make it really plain. That's not picking on you, okay? Hear me. There are plenty of adults, Pastor Jason included, that end up grumbling and arguing about things. We all do that. It's a temptation we all face. Let me ask you a question. Even the kids in the room can answer. What is included in everything? (laughs) Everything. (laughs) It's a pretty sweeping command. Oh, wait, you mean that thing that I hate doing? You mean... Serving in the hot kitchen or showing up on time for the nursery duty I signed up for or taking my turn on the cleanup crew? You mean emptying the dishwasher at home again or taking the trash out when it's full? You mean going to Target, raking the leaves, doing my homework, boiling noodles for dinner? Everything. Friends, we are all prone to grumbling. Just Read the Old Testament. God's people are not immune from it. But Paul tells the believers that our attitudes have a purpose. Our attitude, our mindset has a purpose. Did you see that? Verse 15 is a purpose clause. So that. So that. Paul says... Uh, When you have a humble, obedient, non-complaining mindset, you exemplify the gospel. You're blameless, pure, children of God, faultless in this crooked and perverted generation, holding fast to the word of God. Don't leave that out. But this attitude, this um, doing everything without grumbling or complaining stands out. When our conversations with believers or unbelievers take on a characteristic of grumbling, murmuring, complaining, we lose our distinctiveness from the world. I beg you, prove me wrong. Just go look at social media. So to be salt and light for the sake of shining like stars, we must do everything without Grumbling and arguing. So, Leonardtown Baptist Church, whether it's because of the darkness and the outside and the opponents, or because of internal squabbles, we will be tempted to grumble. And at some point, while we are living life together as a community in the church, the elders or some Bible fellowship teacher, some singer, some greeter, or maybe somebody in your life group, who it is, is beside the point. The point is, somebody will disappoint you at the church, and you will be tempted to complain. Now, let me be very clear. I am not asking anyone to excuse sin or turn a blind eye to inappropriate behavior. That's not what we're talking about. I am saying that just like in any family, personalities and proximity create issues, and the same will be true in a church family. And the question is, will you grumble and complain or will you humble yourself and not always look out for numero uno? Will you think highly of the other person 
And as you do that, will you do so in sacrificial love? Because Paul says, when you act like that, you shine like stars in the world. Brothers and sisters, we must never forget that Jesus told us that we are to be salt and light. Leonardtown Baptist Church is an outpost of the kingdom of heaven right here on earth. It should be characterized by citizens of the kingdom who exemplify the gospel that unites them. And as a result, we should shine brightly in St. Mary's County and everywhere we go. You say, but Pastor Jason, this world is so dark. I just can't understand how bad things have seemed to have gotten. It makes me long for heaven. Well, brothers and sisters, that's why we have a taste of heaven right here every single week. I hope that after today's message, you place a greater value, a greater weight on this heavenly polis instead of the earthly polis. You will, after all, be spending eternity with these dear brothers and sisters as a result of our heavenly citizenship. And friends, as regards to our earthly citizenship, Charles Spurgeon writes this. He says, quote, You're not to get out of it. You're to speak for your Lord right where you are. Notice where the lights shine. They shine in the midst of a perverse and crooked nation, generation. Your position in the midst of darkness should actually serve to incentivize you. See, the worst people are around you. The worst people are off in the place where you're in the midst of. The more they need of your light shining brightly. If they're crooked, the more need they have that you set them straight. If they're perverse, the more need they have of you helping them to see how their proud hearts need to turn to the truth. The worse your position is that you're shining in, the more thankful we ought to be that we are in it. Now, how's that for not grumbling? Be thankful. After all, where else should a physician be but where the sick are? We are to shine in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Spurgeon goes on to add, to be lights in the world means that a Christian has to have some degree of publicity. Let's think about that for a minute. In other words, it's hardly possible to carry out a Christian's true character if a Christian lives in such retirement and such secrecy as to never be known as a Christian. That hardly seems like shining, does it? How much of publicity then do we think is necessary of a Christian? Spurgeon asks. It is becoming that a Christian should make a public profession of his or her faith. He should come out from among the world and declare himself to be on the Lord's side. Some of you know where I'm going with this. You see, there is an ordinance that God himself has ordained, which is the proper way in which to make this profession. Be baptized in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
openly being buried in water to show our death to the world, rising out of the water to show that the hope that we have in a new life as a result of what Christ has accomplished for us in his resurrection from the dead. So I'm asking you this morning, Leonardtown Baptist Church, who is on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side? Will you take your public stand for Jesus today? Some of you have been sitting back and waiting, hoping that you could keep your faith in Jesus to yourself. But this is not what Christians are called to do. We are called to be lights in the world as citizens of heaven. So my question is simply this. Are you his? Are you his? Publicize it. Go public with it. There is, after all, a day coming when the Son of Man will come and send out his angels. Have you heard me preach about that recently? That day, that concealed day. Paul mentioned it. Did you see it in verse 16? He called it the day of Christ. On that day, Jesus tells us in Luke's gospel, I say to you, anyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God that he sends forth. But whoever denies me before others will be denied before the angels of God. Listen, your faith was never meant to be a Lone Ranger thing. That's why we need the church, this heavenly kingdom outpost. You see, citizens belong. Citizens are enrolled in the census. Citizens relate to one another. And citizens go public. They shine. So Leonardtown Baptist Church, it is high time that we illuminate St. Mary's County with the light of heaven. Do you, do you believe that? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm reminded of Joshua. He said, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Father, I pray that there are fathers and mothers who are here that are saying, we want to be on the Lord's side. We're going to go public for Jesus. Father, I pray for students who have placed their faith in you, who have yet to profess that publicly that they'd go public, start living a life that publicizes that they belong to you, unashamed, unafraid, expecting opposition. Father, my heart breaks for our students, all the way from elementary through college. The darkness is very dark in the environments in which they are surrounded. But Lord, at the same time, what a great privilege and what great shining can happen when even young people take a stand for Jesus Christ. Don't let anyone look down upon you because you're young, Paul tells Timothy. Set an example for the believers in speech, life, love, faith, purity. Father, I pray that we would have exemplary, shining, bright students in the environments in which they find themselves.
Lord, for the various employment scenarios in which the majority of our congregation finds themselves, the difficulty of being public for Jesus is a known factor. Heavenly Father, I pray for boldness, winsomeness, and an impeccable character. Lord, a character that brings no offense to the gospel other than the offense of the gospel itself. It's offensive enough in some ways for light to shine in darkness. We know how it is to be fast asleep and to wake up and to have a bright light shining in our face. So, Lord, may we add no offense by our life. May we be faultless, blameless, not known for murmuring and grumbling and argumentativeness and whatnot. May we be known as exemplary husbands and wives, kind speech that is seasoned with salt, uplifting, encouraging, holy people. Father, I pray for our church and thank you for it. I pray that you would grow us in holiness as we also prayerfully grow with those who profess your name. Father, we thank you for the privilege of your word. We pray that we would be found faithful to obedience to it. In Jesus' name, amen.